If I asked you, who is the bravest, most courageous person in the Bible? I suspect you might say King David. That, that would be my answer. I mean, at least he's in the top three. I mean, this is the man who defeated Goliath. What more proof do you need of bravery and courage? But there's a story about David that doesn't get quite as much attention, and for good reason. We actually find it at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 21, where David is on the run from the murderously jealous King Saul, and he flees to the land of the Philistines, to a place called Gath, where Achish was the king. Now, that did not prove to be the best decision, considering that David is the one who killed the Philistines' main man, Goliath. So, of course, the people there recognize David, and then he realizes he's in trouble. So what does David, the mighty warrior, do in this situation? He pretends to be insane. He scribbles nonsense on the walls. He drools all down his beard. To which King Akish says, Why is this madman in my presence? And he sends David away. So the clever ruse works, and David is able to escape, but this is not exactly something you want to put on your greatest hits album. This is not David's finest moment. This is not at his bravest and most courageous. But he gets away, and he sneaks down to a cave in a place called Adullam, where about 400 men come to join him. And the scripture tells us that these men were distressed, in debt, and discontented. And David became captain over them. This is a ragtag group of people led by a man on the run. Now, why am I telling this story? Because it was right there in the cave of Adullam that David wrote one of his most famous psalms, where David was in despair and distress, running from for his life uh, on the heels of, frankly, a humiliating experience, David writes a triumphant, wonderful, glorious psalm. It's Psalm 34, and that's what we're going to look at today. I want us to study through the 34th psalm. It is a psalm of praise for deliverance and victory, even in the midst of some very strange and adverse circumstances. Uh, we're going to take a, a bird's eye view of this psalm today. Um, I think it'll be a great encouragement to us because we face our own strange and adverse circumstances. But this is 22 verses that make up this psalm. We're not going to have time to, to pick apart every word in detail with, uh, with a larger chunk of, of scripture. But we do see the psalm unfold, I think, in three primary uh, movements, uh, three, three main points in these verses that, uh, that I made a way for them to all start with D. Hopefully that'll be more memorable for us. Three Ds here. First, we see in David's words, delight, then devotion, and finally deliverance. Those are the three movements of this psalm. There's delight, devotion, and deliverance. So let's just jump right in. We know the context. 
David riding from the cave of Agilum on the heels of something deeply uh, terrifying and humiliating, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot going well for David at this point. And yet look what he writes. Psalm 34, verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Now, what exactly does David have to be happy about in this precise moment? We've already mentioned this. He's on the run for his life, not just from enemy nations like the Philistines, but even his own king, Saul, is seeking David's life. He's hiding in a cave. And sure, he's got 400 companions. That's, that's not bad. But, but where's everybody supposed to use the bathroom? I mean, in all seriousness, these 400 men have come to David not to bear his burdens, but they've brought him their own. They come disillusioned, the scripture says. They're looking for his leadership. There was a lot of burden on David at this stage of his life, and yet he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my lips. My soul boasts in the Lord. Um, so how is David able to bless and praise and boast like this? Because his delight is not rooted in his circumstances, but in the person of God. And I want to say that again. David's delight, it's, it's obvious here, it jumps off the page. His delight is not rooted in his circumstances, but in the person of God. Now, that doesn't mean that David is in denial of his circumstances. Not at all. Look at verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him, God's people looked to him, and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried. Now David speaks of himself. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Notice now, in the latter part of each verse, David says God delivers from fear, shame, trouble, even death, even the worst of circumstances. Those are present realities connected to circumstances. Uh, it's not unfounded fear, unfounded shame. No, they, these are real and painful circumstances that David is acknowledging. But his approach to reality doesn't begin there. David's understanding of reality doesn't begin with circumstances because we look back at the foundation, at the former uh, words in each verse, the beginning of each verse, 4, 5, 6, and 7. Look at the foundation. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. They looked to him and were radiant. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. That's the foundation that now 
dictates the circumstance and how it's viewed and understood. And, and so it may, it may help us to think of it like this. David's delight was not built on good outcomes, but on the Lord himself. David was not happy simply because things were turning out well for him. I mean, he was alive. He, the Philistines didn't kill him. That's good. <laughs> but his circumstances are by no means ideal at this point. And so his delight can't be circumstance-driven. Uh, it's based on the Lord himself. And this comes through really clearly when we see David's appeal to us. David is probably writing this psalm and sharing it with these 400 men who are with him. And of course, now we have it for ourselves. Look at this appeal in verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. And now this is one of the great invitations in all of Scripture. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the person who takes refuge, who puts all their trust in him. Y'all, this is an invitation to experience, to taste, and enjoy the goodness of God personally. You don't have to take my word for it that honey is sweet. Taste it for yourself and see, right? This is what David is saying. Seek the Lord and you shall not be in want of any good thing. Now, let's be careful at this point to recall that David is hiding out in a cave running for his life. He's not singing about good things from a terrace overlooking the sea, but from a dank and dark, humiliating place. No place for a future king. No place for a mighty man who loves and honors God, right? Isn't God withholding good things from David at this very moment, even as David is saying that God doesn't? But y'all, this, this goes hand in hand with what we see really all throughout the scripture. What we saw in our study of Philippians that we just concluded last week where the Apostle Paul is constantly rejoicing all throughout the letter, joy, rejoicing, uh, gladness, thanksgiving. It's all over Paul's words, even as he writes those words from a Roman prison. Those words were not a reflection on sweet and easy circumstances. They were written through great difficulty. Now, how is it that, that people like Paul and David can come to such a place of delight in the midst of adversity? Well, it's because their delight is in God. Their delight is in God. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Therefore, those who seek him will not be in want of any good thing. And right here, this is such a deeply important biblical truth, one that I have hopefully been learning more and more over time, and I've got so far yet to go. 
We've got to understand this, you and me. If your ultimate good, as you envision it, as you understand it, your, if your ultimate good is a circumstance, if the thing that brings you the greatest delight is something tangible, be it wealth or romance or success or just plain ease and comfort, if that's your understanding of the greatest good, then you're always going to live disillusioned with God. Because the reality is bad things happen. Comfort never lasts. Even money and love and success are unable to satisfy us at the deepest level, even when the accounts are full, we know in our hearts that it's all fleeting. It doesn't do for us what we thought and hoped that it would. And so if my sense of delight is built on good circumstances and good feelings, then I'll never really know the kind of delight David is talking about. I'll never really understand the deep-rooted joy that belongs to those who take refuge in God. See, the truth is, y'all, God does give us good things. God gives us an abundance of good things, more good than we can measure, and certainly more good than what we deserve. But the ultimate good is God himself. The ultimate good is God. There's nothing better God can give you than relationship with him. It doesn't exist. There's nothing better, there's no greater gift, there's no greater source of delight, of joy, than the person of God himself. And that's why the invitation stands for all of us. Whether you're in a palace right now, or you're in a cave. No matter, David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. There is delight in God and in his goodness. But we see it at the second point here, in the middle of the psalm, David also calls us to devotion. Delight, yes, but also devotion. And when I use that word devotion, that may sound like a passive thing, like a quiet time, a devotional time. Uh, as if somehow that's passive, uh, but it's not. David does not treat it passively. It's an active, uh, all-of-life response to God. We're not just meant to enjoy God's goodness. We're meant to live according to it. Look at verse 11. Paul, uh, David now calls out to God's people, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Um, Derek Kidner summarizes this section wonderfully. He says, The good you enjoy goes hand in hand 
with the good you do. Isn't that great? That's true. The good you enjoy goes hand in hand with the good you do. We've just seen how David began this psalm. He's speaking of God's goodness in the midst of fear and shame and trouble. In our poverty, in our struggle, God is very rich and we delight in him. And David's going to return to that theme at the end of the psalm when he talks about deliverance. But here in the middle, there is a stern resolution of devotion, uh, the pursuit of God and his goodness. If you and I want to know the goodness of God, David says, we must commit to walk, to live righteously. That's the premise given to us in verse 12. David says, who desires life? Who loves length of days? Who wishes to see good? And at this point, everybody's got their hand raised. This is what everybody wants. We all want to experience the fullness of life as God has intended for us. Well, verse 13 says, in that case, speak righteously. Speak righteously. Verse 14, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The way you speak, the way you act, the evil you uh, leave behind and the good you pursue. Now that, that seems to be common sense to us, right? If to, to do good, to seek peace. If we do those things, then life generally will go better for us. I think that that's qualifies as common sense. We all know this, that people who tell the truth experience a better quality of life than people who lie. Even if lying temporarily gets us ahead, it doesn't bless us in the long run. We sleep better. We experience greater peace when we live with integrity. Common sense. But David is doing more in the middle of this psalm than simply giving us common wisdom. This is not folk wisdom here. You see back in verse 11, before he calls us to holiness, David says, I will teach you the fear of of the Lord, which means I will instruct you in the awe and reverence of God. I will show you what it means to devote your whole self to God, heart, soul, mind, strength. That's what the fear of the Lord is. It's not just a passing emotion that we feel from time to time. It is a deep-seated identity for us that we're always building our life around God and upon God, that we're always looking to him as the one true glorious heavenly father who deserves all of our thanks and praise and our obedience. And so this, y'all, what David is saying here is you cannot enjoy God in the abstract. The, the delight that we started this psalm with we don't enjoy it simply by thinking nice thoughts. We enjoy God to the degree that we walk with him, that we live for him. We experience his goodness, David says, as we seek him and obey him. It's not a passive feeling. It's an active reality. And see, that's where we, we find the marriage between delight and devotion in this psalm. 
that those two things are meant to be connected. They're not, it's not one or the other. Delight and devotion are married together. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. Oh, God's face is turned toward us. I, I want you to think about what that image implies, what it means. God's face, God's attention, God's care and concern, his love, his favor, his grace is turned toward you. You have his eyes and his ears because you fear him and devote yourself to him. Just as, alternately, just as he turns his face against the wicked and those who refuse to fear him. But to those who call upon the Lord, to those who fear him in awe and reverence, who worship him, who bless him, who, who look to him as their refuge, you have God's fatherly care always upon you. You have his face. That's where our delight comes from, the face of God, the presence of God, and that's our devotion, is we're seeking his face. We're doing everything in our power to love, honor, praise, and obey him. That's how the Christian life is meant to go. Now, I want you to see how this psalm ties together. We have delight, we have devotion, but now at the end we have deliverance. And this is not something separate. It's a movement in, in the sense that it builds on what we've already seen. Look at verse 17. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now, there are two clear reminders that come out of this little section here. First, the righteous are often afflicted and brokenhearted. Reject any version of Christianity, any version of Christian teaching that says, because God loves me, he won't let anything bad happen to me. Reject that wholesale and take it from the guy who just faked insanity to save his own skin and is now living in a cave. Take it from him. He's the one who tells us that. We should never be surprised when affliction comes. No amount of righteousness on our part safeguards us from trouble. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And so David is calling us to embrace this reality that even the strongest of Christian men and women know personally. They know what it is to be afflicted, to be brokenhearted, to be crushed in spirit. There is no such person who coasts on through life without affliction. But second, notice that in every verse, David says God is near, God delivers, God saves. In fact, David says the Lord delivers us out of all our afflictions. Now, is that really true? Well, look at how the psalm closes. Verse 20, 
He, God, keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Hey, buddy, I'm recording my sermon. Can you go downstairs for about 10 more minutes? Home office. Um, the Lord, verse 22, the Lord redeems the soul of his servants and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Uh, David goes beyond mere affliction, which is circumstantial, and here at the end, he speaks finally of condemnation. Now, what he's talking about is our ultimate eternal standing before God. The wicked stand condemned. Those who trust in the Lord do not, because the Lord redeems the soul of his servants. There, there, there is a real and tangible deliverance David is speaking of here that he himself has experienced. He is alive, not because he was so clever in front of the king uh, Akish, but David believes that God mercifully rescued him. He saved him. Right? That's a tangible deliverance. David knows it. And at the same time, there's a far greater deliverance, something David looks forward to. He calls it the redemption of the soul. Now, y'all, this there is... In this psalm, especially here at the end, there is a huge arrow pointing us to this greater redemption. And in reality, the whole Bible does this. The whole Bible, one page after another, is revealing to us a God who loves us and redeems us. Not just generally, not just general love and redemption, but specifically through the good news of God's Son, Jesus Christ. That is the message of the whole Bible. That is what all of Scripture is speaking to and pointing us to. And, and Psalm 34 is no exception. We saw this a moment ago in verse 20. It seems odd, maybe. God keeps all the bones of the righteous. Not one of them is broken. It seems like a strange promise. And if a Christian ever breaks a bone, it seems like, a pretty flimsy promise, right? Until we come to John chapter 19, where Jesus dies on the cross, and the Roman soldiers, rather than breaking Jesus' legs, according to the custom of crucifixion, they pierce his side to confirm that he had died. And John says, John 19.36, this happened. To fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. Now, we might chalk that up to an interesting coincidence that John just happened to catch. Or random Bible trivia. How interesting. No. But the point is, John's point is, Jesus came to fulfill the scripture not just to make interesting connections between Old and New Testament. Jesus came to fulfill the scripture, 
to fulfill God's plan, God's purpose, God's promise. So when David reaches the pinnacle of this psalm in the last verse, when David says, the Lord redeems the soul of his servants and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Okay, how exactly does God accomplish that promise? Is that just some sort of general sprinkling of blessing upon his creation? No, God achieves that promise through the fulfillment of his son, Jesus Christ. You know, in, in Colossians chapter 1, we're told, God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. This is the great redemption that David looked ahead to. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not something we look ahead to in hope for, but this is something the Christian lives now in very present reality. Right now, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Why not? Romans 8 goes on to say, because Jesus Christ went to the cross and condemned our sin in his own flesh. He condemned sin in his own body. This is an amazing plot twist right here. All this talk in Psalm 34 about how God blesses the righteous, but the deep down truth the Bible tells us is that we are not righteous. Not truly. We can do our best with all the best intentions, but at the end of the day, every single one of us, we fall short of the glory of God. We cannot live up to his holiness. We cannot reach the bar or climb the latter. We are not righteous on our own. We can't live up to and merit the blessings of God. So what does God do? He sends his own perfectly righteous son, Jesus, to bear our sins, to take on our guilt, to bear upon himself our condemnation that we had earned by our sin so that our souls would be redeemed, so that we would be saved from all condemnation, so that the penalty of our sins would be paid by another, and that we would be set free. Y'all, God doesn't just make promises. He keeps them. God doesn't just wish us well. He does us good all the days of our life. He gives us himself. Remember what David has already expressed to us. The ultimate good, the greatest gift is God himself. That's why those who take refuge in him, those who trust Jesus, always have cause to say, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my lips. We never lack any good thing because the ultimate good, the eternal good, has been given to us in full. We have been reconciled to God through the death of his Son.
even in the darkest of circumstances. He is our boast and our joy, our delight, because he is our redeemer, our deliverer, our savior. This psalm is true for us in a way that it was not fully realized even by the man who wrote it. Because what he looked ahead to, we now reflect on. Jesus Christ has come. He has redeemed us and saved us from condemnation. And therefore, we know the Lord in the fullness of his fulfilling promises. May we taste and see today the goodness of our Lord. May his goodness give us delight, of course, and may our response be wholehearted devotion. When, when David says, taste and see that the Lord is good, and we look to the cross of Jesus Christ, there is no doubt that that verse is true and that it is ours to enjoy forever. So let's pray that we would. Father, what a gift it is to look upon this scripture today, to know that, Father, our circumstances at face value want to poison what this scripture promises us and calls us to. If we were to build our delight, our, our identity, our perception on the good or the bad that happens to us day by day, um, then we would, we would quickly lose hope. We would, we would be perhaps like these men who joined David in the cave, that they were in debt and distressed and discontent. They were despairing. They were dried up. And Lord, we all know what that is to feel that. Or maybe right now we're feeling it in the midst of such a strange uh, uh, circumstance that we share together right now. And yet, Father, you have offered us yourself, the ultimate good. As David says um, in Psalm 16, uh, in your presence, God, there is fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures forever. So, Father, would you teach us this morning to build our, our delight, to build our perspective, to build our whole life on you? That whether we're in, in, a, in a palace or a cave, that whether we're experiencing favorable things or not, that we are unmoved and unfazed because our delight is in you. And thank you, Lord, that you, you so graciously fulfilled the scripture in your son, Jesus Christ. That we don't speak about redemption, that we don't speak about um, salvation as some hope for the future, but as present reality, because you have sent your son to be our redeemer and our savior. So, Father, I pray that for us today we would delight in you and you alone 
come what may, that our delight would be uh, fixed. I will continually bless the name of the Lord, no matter what. And I pray, Father, for me, I pray for us, that our devotion would reflect that delight. That we would not be people who simply think nice thoughts about you today, but people who speak righteously, who depart from evil and do good, that we seek peace and pursue it, that we are a people wholly devoted to you. So that the good we enjoy is tied together with the good we do. That we would be your people in this world, zealous for good works and your glory. Father, there's so much here for us to, to soak in, to take in. Uh, I pray, Lord, that whether we, whether we uh, remember each and every detail of, of the lines of this psalm or not, that we would take the whole um, as, as deeply encouraging and deeply motivating. You are the God who is altogether good. Let us taste it and see, and give our lives in full to you. Thank you, Lord, for the Son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that all of these things might be fulfilled in fullest measure. We praise him, and we pray that we might live for him today in his precious name. Amen.